Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Getinji Gitahi, the group CEO of AMREF Health Africa, the leading Africa-based health development international NGO whose vision is to achieve lasting health change in Africa. To achieve its mandate, AMREF implements health programs in over 35 countries in Africa and maintains fundraising offices in Europe and North America. It further owns and operates three enterprise units, namely AMREF Flying Doctors, AMREF International University, and AMREF Health Innovations. Dr. Gitahi joined AMREF Health Africa in 2015, and he's worked in various positions in the health, media, and private sectors. And prior to joining AMREF, he was the VP and Regional Director for Africa with Smile Train International. He is renowned as a leader on the global and regional front with notable achievements, including co-chairing the global UHC 2013 movement, serving on the Commission on Africa's COVID-19 response, serving as a member of the Governing Board of Africa's CDC, and was recently appointed to the Board of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. He also serves on the Board of the Standard Group in Kenya and the Board of Trustees of Safaricom Foundation. He's a vocal advocate for pro-poor universal health coverage and leads the largest thought leadership convening on the Africa health agenda. So Dr. Gatari, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So we always like to ask our guests to say in their own words, what got them interested in a career in medicine in the first place? Well, I, I must say actually that uh, my starting was not actually to get into the career of medicine. I, I went through school and... Um, what I find when I look back that I ended up in medicine because I have always had a, a very nagging need for social justice. And uh, I think it, I ended up in medicine because that was a place that I found where social justice is needed and is probably the foundation for healthy population. So I didn't look out for medicine as a technical area. I was looking to enter into an area of social justice. And that is why actually, even after doing a bit of clinical work in the hospital, I found myself gravitating more and more towards public health because I was more concerned about what people getting sick, where are they coming in, uh, where are they coming from, what was the relevance of their family situation and their work situation in their health. So it was more a platform of social justice. And that's what, that's what has kept me going on it. That's wonderful and actually echoes what some of our raised line guests have said is medicine being a great place where you can affect large social change as you're doing at AMREF Health Africa. So, you know, we obviously gave a lot of description in the in the introduction around what you all do at AMREF Health Africa. Can you give us a better sense uh, in your own words about your priorities, what you're focused on? I'm sure things have changed since you joined in 2015, especially given the COVID experience, which we'll get into. But yeah, what, what's top of mind for you and, and uh, what would you add to my description? So I think uh, the thing about your description is our approach as an organization. So whereas we work in all these countries, and whereas if you look at our our documents, you'll see a lot of work on HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, water and sanitation, um, you will actually find that the most unique thing about our work is the approach. It's not the actual vertical or theme that we are working on. And our approach has always been to build health or sustainable health for all, community up. So our most of our work will be based at a community level, at a household level, and utilizing a really critical asset of the community, which is a community health worker. People who are identified by communities, and those becomes our agents of change. And they'll become our agents of change 
for COVID vaccination. There'll be our agents of change for TB tracing. There'll be our agents of change for encouraging women to go for antenatal care. There'll be agents of change when we're encouraging adolescents to seek family planning. There'll be agents of change and carrying water and sanitation and hygiene. So our approach is what is unique. It is actually using communities as agents of change and everything else we do, whether we are training, delivering medicine, the basis and the foundation is actually community health system strengthening, which are built bottom up. That's fantastic. And um, obviously, you know, community health workers, social determinants of health are key things that were always important, but because of COVID have, have become even more important. Can you talk to us a bit about the experience you and, and your team have had during COVID? Plus, you know, it's very hard to paint broad brushstrokes about the African experience, but for our audience who've mostly heard from, you know, North American and, and Europe type uh, guests, what, you know, in your own words, what's the situation been like over the past several years and how is it now in Kenya or beyond in Africa? When you think about COVID and how African people experience COVID, the context is extremely different from the rest of the world. And I'll, and I'll talk about that. The first thing being that the responses to COVID that we found initially were not um, responses that were wholesomely bought by the people. Uh, some of the original, um, uh, what you'd call the original policies of WHO, for example, telling people that you cannot be allowed to bury your dead if they died of COVID, are extremely anti-cultural values of the African people. And we found people struggle with that. We found people really struggle with not being able to bury their dead. Whereas in the developed world, you know, burial is a more of a very technical issue. Here is a cultural issue. And we found people struggling, fighting with the police. They wanted to bury their own people. And they were running battles on that. So that's one. So the cultural value and paying attention to people's lives and what they value most was not considered when the policies were being set up. That's number one. This also includes the measures for uh, lockdowns. We found very early on that whereas lockdowns were recommended, they were not going to be effective in the continent. And uh, we, the reason for this is whereas you, uh, you think that you look at a country like France or Britain or the US and say 80, 90% of people are formally employed, meaning that they, they'll receive their salary anyway, uh, even if they took a day off, 80% of our people across the continent are informally employed. So if a mother has to sell vegetables on the street to make a living for her children, she cannot do that virtually. She has to show up at work to sell the vegetables. If I am a plumber, I have to go and do the plumbing work. If I work on a construction site, I have to show up myself. So the moment you say people stay at home, then you, you have to find a way of feeding them. And because, of course, the economies are small, the social protection mechanisms in Africa are not robust like they are in other areas. So we found that policies like lockdown could not work. And I think um, uh, that 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 was a, a resulted because some governments tried to follow the, the guidelines of the letter. And this resulted in a significant level of unrest uh, in the continent. So we ended up just saying, why, why don't we build the trust of the people and actually understand what they want and explain to them what is it that we the lockdowns are for? Not so that they do them, but so that they actually exhibit behavior that can still keep them safe while they still go to work. And uh, we start talking more about social distancing than lockdowns. Allow people to go to work, but tell them to wear their masks, to wash their hands, uh, you know, to avoid close contact and to avoid going into closed spaces. So we started to define what the risks looked like and why these policies were in place. And that tended to work a little more. The final point that I would like to say is we noticed that trust was really critical. Of course, you know, Africa is made up of multiple countries, 
we found that the measures were more effective in countries where the communities had trust with their government. And uh, where there was no trust, we found that the measures were not respected at all. And that brought us to the conclusion that community trust should be built before it's needed. It is a continuous asset for any government and for public health measures. That's help. That's really helpful and insightful. And I'm curious, so diving into that, what are some examples of countries that maybe have done extremely well in terms of the response and, and current situation versus maybe countries that are still, you know, need a lot of help to, to get to uh, get to those other levels? So we found countries like Rwanda, where people have a high level of trust for their government, Ethiopia as well. And when you talk about trust for government, remember that, it, you know, government is a complex construct. You would imagine that if people don't trust the police, uh, that is government. If people don't trust the judges, that is government. So it's not purely just the president or the ministers. It's how people trust their institutions of government. And that trust comes from those institutions being transparent to them and those institutions having their needs. We found that where that was happening, like Rwanda, like Ethiopia, you know, Kenya to a certain extent, uh, you know, Senegal, we found that therefore the responses were, were you know, were near adequate, were good because people trusted what the government was saying. In countries like DR Congo, where the trust with government has been broken because of extended civil war, and because of obviously the previous pandemics uh, or outbreaks of Ebola that resulted in people uh, fighting with government because they wondered why Ebola was more important than diarrhea, where that was killing their people. They wondered why Ebola was more important than malaria and cholera. And therefore they thought their government was simply doing these things to attract money from WHO and World Bank. Therefore they didn't trust whatever the government said during COVID. So this trust element was critical in the response and was also even more critical in the vaccination drive. And we found the countries that are actually low trust have, have also very low vaccine penetration. Yeah, no, it's, you know, extremely, again, insightful and a big issue we're facing now with trust and misinformation. Obviously, in the states, you know, different states had different responses and outcomes based on things like trust and, and compliance uh, with different measures. You know, you mentioned Rwanda. I wanted to actually touch base on that because in September, I was at the Clinton Global Initiative. We we had Chelsea Clinton on the podcast some, some uh, a year ago now. And at that uh, summit, uh, Melinda Gates was on the stage and uh, was with the Dean of the University of Global Health Equity from Partners in Health and Dr. Sheila Davis, who also was on the podcast. And they announced a wonderful scholarship to fund the free training of Rwandan medical students to become physicians and hopefully stay in Rwanda. We've had the opportunity to work with UGHE for several years since they began uh, providing free content to them for their training. Um, I'm curious, you know, Rwanda seems like a great example of a country that obviously went through a lot of strife and now has uh, a lot of trust in government, a lot of great development and, and outcomes from it. What are some of the things that different countries in Africa are doing to train more healthcare workers, whether community healthcare workers or um, physicians, and not just train them, but keep them in practice and or keep them in the country, just because brain drain has been such an issue, obviously, across the world, but certainly, uh, I know, in certain regions in Africa. So the training of health workforce has evolved from where it was, um, you know, early in the 70s and 80s, from being a public, um, uh, a publicly driven agenda, meaning the government was training people. When I went to medical school, only the government was training people. Uh, but then the private sector has now come in to play a major role and the reason for this is because of demand. We have had a huge youth population, a growing youth population who need jobs. 
Uh, we have education access as a major drive and desire for everybody, but also a growing middle class that has resulted in parents being able to pay uh, school fees for their children and therefore seeking institutions uh, that could provide that for them. So in, in countries in Africa, and especially in countries where the middle class is rising quickly, the education sector has expanded even for uh, health courses, health sciences, nursing and public health, and all these people are paying uh, for themselves. And that's why scholarships are important because then you also have to close the gap of equity by ensuring those who can't afford are, are accessing. So what we are seeing is a rapidly increasing number of people trained in health sciences, people trained to be health workers, but we are also seeing a big challenge or an increasing gap between those who are then trained and employed and those who are unemployed. So we have a huge gap of people who are employed. But at the same time, because populations are growing, the need and the demand for health workforce in the both private and public is rising significantly. But can it absorb the number of people who are being trained? And the answer is no. So we have untrained, we have trained nurses and doctors who are jobless. And this is what is driving the migration. This is what is driving what we're now calling labor migration, health labor migration, uh, which people refer to as brain drain, people moving out of Africa to seek for jobs. And uh, that is something of concern to us. And I think the solution is that if the demand uh, continues to be uh, addressed with more and more training, then we should be open to free labor migration because again, it's also individual rights for people to seek work where they think it's best for them. And remember, number two is that we have a challenge of uh, retention, which is also driven by underinvestment in the health sector. So if you're trained as a nurse, but you don't have the necessary health products and technologies to deliver your work, if you're trained as an anesthesiologist, a lab technologist, but you don't have the right health products and technologies to deliver your work, then you'll seek work elsewhere. And part of this challenge has to do with um, uh, with investment capacity, what we call the fiscal space. Today, uh, you know, I was talking about France and and and, and Africa, and uh, the France, the population of France is 65 million people, and the population of Africa is 1.3 billion people. But the two geographies have exactly the same GDP, so you can actually see that is a stark explanation of what the challenges are. So it's not purely refusal to absorb; it is that the fiscal space is very low. And the competing priorities for the available tax uh, is, 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 is actually, they are very high, but the tax also is low because as I say, most of the people are informal and it's very difficult to tax the informal sector. Uh, so the tax efficiency is low, the GDP is low, the population is growing, and therefore that puts tension in terms of being able to invest in all the areas that are, that are needed or demanded by a growing population and their needs on healthcare. That, I mean, that's really, again, uh, clear breakdown of some of the challenges and opportunities ahead of us. Um, and is that one of the main reasons why there's such an investment in community healthcare worker training, like just expanding scope of practice, because ultimately it's much cheaper and much easier to train a community healthcare worker. Uh, and they're the ones obviously can develop a lot of trust than to train a neurosurgeon in a specific uh, city in Africa or anywhere. Um, you know, is that the, the a big focus of, of AMREF or if, uh, of African governments as a whole? So um, if, if we, we need to look at these cadres as uh, complementary to each other. And uh, we look at them as complementary, meaning that uh, we don't train one to replace the other. We train one to complement the other. 
Amrafelt Africa trains thousands and thousands of community health workers in multiple countries, and they are trained to ensure that the communities understand health promotion, health prevention, improve their health-seeking behavior, and that is absolutely important in ensuring that we have a healthy community. At the same time, AMREF has a university that is actually training nurses, training physiotherapists, training people in reproductive health, training diploma and master's degrees in public health so that people understand how to run the health system. So we train all of them, all the cadres, in a complementary manner. Um, now, of course, as the public health develops, the concept of, uh, of uh, task sharing is also, is also improving and increasing, and the policy framework for it. I'll give you an example. Right now, and for the long time, community health workers were only allowed to, for example, um, just go and talk to people, and if somebody has pain, they could uh, give painkillers and give advice and refer. But now we are seeing policy changing in many countries where they are being allowed to carry anti-malarial tablets. We are seeing uh, that's, that's task sharing because instead of somebody going to the facility, they can actually get the malaria tablets and get diagnosed at the community. We are seeing a shift where community health workers are only allowed to carry condoms for family planning or productive health. But now we are seeing countries changing policy to allow them to carry uh, oral contraceptives. Community health workers for a long time could not um, carry antibiotics. But now we know that pneumonia in children uh, is heavily impacted positively by community health workers being able to provide, uh, you know, treatment with amoxil at home. Of course, there are many challenges to ensuring that you don't, don't create, uh, you know, anti-malarial resistance, antimicrobial resistance, and all these things. But that just comes from training, monitoring, good compliance. So the, the cadres are complementary, but we're also seeing the tasks being shared. Uh, originally, you know, only ophthalmologists, ophthalmology physicians could carry out eye cataract surgery. But now we know that uh, uh, you know ophthalmology technicians who are trained at diploma level are now carrying the bulk of cataract eye surgery uh, surgeries. So this task sharing uh, must be seen uh, to be also just part of complementarity, not as uh, basically shifting tasks from one cadre to another. So we train all the cadres uh, and uh, to support the health system as needed. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that, and it's definitely patient centric. It's it's trying to figure out, you know, how do you coordinate care across these different cadres, as you're mentioning. And it speaks to some personal experience I've had where, before we started the podcast, I mentioned that I was born in Namibia. And the reason was my dad trained as a physician in in, uh, in India, and my mom is a physical therapist. And similar to what you were describing in, this, in Africa, there actually weren't enough jobs or good paying jobs in India to support the healthcare workforce. So my parents immigrated to Namibia, and then we grew up in South Africa near Durban for five years where my dad ran a hospital. But as a GP, a general practitioner, he was doing you know very complicated cesarean sections, OBGYN procedures. He was doing uh, ophthalmologic surgery just because the need was so high that they had to expand the scope of practice to be able to do those things, uh, do those procedures. So even my story comes from a, a similar kind of migration and then they eventually migrated to the US where I mostly grew up. So um, yeah, that's fascinating. No, that's fantastic. And maybe a rejoinder to that is imagine if your parents were stopped from moving from India to seek opportunity because they were described maybe as brain drain. Maybe imagine they were bonded in India and stopped from migrating. Their trajectory may have been completely different than yours as well. So even as we talk about health worker migration as a negative force, we must remember that individuals 
have the human right to seek opportunity. And the most important thing is that any government that wants to employ them must provide the right working environment for them, pay them well so that they are retained, and also create the right environment for them to work rather than to focus on forcing health workforce to stay where they are trained. We should focus on improving the environment of work and, and so that they are also seeking for greater opportunities like the example you've given of your parents and, and yourself as well. It may have been what set your trajectory. It definitely, it definitely obviously helped with the focus on tech in, in the U.S., which got me into osmosis. And the nice thing is the circularity of this, where um, now osmosis is training, uh, you know, we just have a new project to train 250,000 ASHA workers in India, right, where they first started in community healthcare workers for 90 million patients. And and again, before we started this podcast, I mentioned I'll be coming back to Africa in a couple of months for rare disease work and a Kilimanjaro track that we're doing um, and we provide free access from osmosis to many universities across sub-Saharan Africa, including Namibia, University of Namibia and uh, UGHE and University of Malawi as, as a couple of examples. So I think the circularity of it is that, you know, because my parents were allowed to migrate as freely as they were, uh, those challenges, uh, it helped, you know, and, but my parents never forgot what India or Indian and African roots. It's kind of part of my DNA as well. Uh, to come back and, and work, uh, and hopefully that helps train more healthcare workers in Africa too. Exactly, and and, and you're welcome to partner with us at Amherst University as well for uh, for those great things that you're doing with UGHE. We'd love that. I know the the reason I even got in touch with you is Elon Shem and Demiziana at the Elsevier Foundation spoke highly of the work that they do with, that you all do at Amref, and I know uh, there's a big conference coming up in a couple of months that you all are hosting for Africa's Vision. You've been now leading the organization for several years. Um, what do you, you know, what are you most proud of as far as accomplishments? And then, say the next decade, what are you hoping Amref will achieve for the continent? Well, uh, thanks for that. It's been seven years now, uh, uh, you know, slightly above seven years. And I think what I am most proud of is our continued engagement and support of the public sector, because uh, Amref's model has never tried to replicate or do things in parallel to government. We have always supported the uh, government. And what that has done is build significant trust with the people, with the communities, because they don't see us as com- competing or, or purely charity-driven and just saying, we are, we're just coming to give you money to do the following. We actually use our efforts to complement uh, government. So that has been um, uh, significant. The second thing, has that I would really appreciate, or I do appreciate, is our rising voice and uh, influence on the health agenda in the continent. We, you know, originally it was difficult to tell whether there was a, a common voice across the continent, but now we can say that anyone who is thinking about civil society on NGO and their voice on the continent, you know, we give our voice on the community health workforce, we've given our voice on universal health coverage and primary health care, we've given our voice on vaccine inequity during COVID. We've given our voice now on visa discrimination for uh, people from Africa who are trying to travel to conferences globally that are discussing their needs. And these have actually positioned AMREF to be a really trusted organization within the continent itself and outside the continent. So looking into the future now, we're asking ourselves, what is really going to be transformational uh, for achieving lasting health change? As you say, that's our vision. And we're asking ourselves, what is really going to be transformational? And we are now remodeling our strategy. Our strategy is ending end of this year. And we are starting a new strategy next year, which is going to be launched at a big conference in Kigali in March, a hike. And we are now focusing on actually social determinants of health. We are starting to say that if indeed a woman who can read uh, gives 
her child a 50% chance of survival to 50 years, then we cannot say that survival to five, to, to five years, sorry, we cannot say that survival to five years is purely a health sector issue. We have to worry about women's education. If we, uh, we know that um, uh, nutrition or, uh, you know, improves when a woman is educated, then you cannot ignore the education of women. So we have to play a role in ensuring that the policies are shaped, the advocacy is shaped to also bring in those areas that influence health, either positively or negatively, and to influence them for better outcomes, not only to focus on the health system as it is, as a singular issue. So we are now bringing in, um, you know, uh, around primary, our primary healthcare approach for UHC, we are bringing in the social determinants of health. Education of women and young people. Of course, uh, Africa is the young people now, you know, the numbers are rising rapidly. That was not a big concern for people 10 years ago, but now we realize that without young people taking the lead, not only being on the table, but actually owning the table and uh, us adapting the system to their takeover, it's not going to be possible in the future. So bringing women and young people to the center, education, climate change and health, uh, you know, water sanitation, housing, bringing that to the conversation around health is going to be our next trajectory for our next strategy, which is going to be eight years anyway, because we are mapping it to the agenda 2030 as well. That's fantastic. There's a lot, of, obviously, a lot of challenges, a lot of deep challenges. You mentioned climate change and, and just education as a whole. But certainly that means a lot of opportunities for innovations. And I've been enthused by seeing a lot of the companies and organizations that have started on the continent, um, you know, huge, huge numbers of software engineers too now across Africa with uh, uh, Nigeria and I think South Africa and Kenya leading the way among, among others. Um, so I'm sure the same will happen for healthcare as well, especially with AMREF uh, pushing that agenda. I'm aware of your time, so I only had two other questions for you. Um, the first is, you know, for our audience who listens to this podcast, many of them want to follow in footsteps of leaders like yourself. What would your uh, advice be to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and beyond? Many of them, as you know, are in healthcare too. So if you can comment on anything they could be doing to approach their clinical and leadership uh, careers, uh, I know they'd appreciate that. I think that uh, for me, everyone has um, uh, their own pathway and their own trajectory, but there are certain foundational issues that we always need to pay attention to uh, because uh, we are in service, actually. We are all in service. We are serving uh, the communities that um, that are busy living their lives uh, with dignity, but we are we're just trying to serve their needs as identified by them. So the first thing I would say is being authentic. Being authentic uh, to the issue and not assuming that actually you know, but being authentic and reflecting on the issue as it is without trying to, um, to you know, to change the issue. The issue is the issue. So focus, be authentic. That's number one. And number two is to wear the lens of social justice. I think that uh, in my life, uh, just wanting to see a better life for people, uh, you know, guides the way I talk to people, the way I manage, the way I relate, the way I design my responses, my the way I understand my insights. So, I, that is a really critical issue. But then those two things I've said, uh, authenticity and social justice, cannot be actually truly realized if we are not aware of our privileges. That's actually the most important point that many of us wear our privileges and we are not conscious of it. And privilege is actually, uh, you have to deliberately and actively be aware of it. And privileges are layered. You know, many of us think privileges are race and color. Uh, just that's one just one dimension of privilege income is a major uh, dimension of privilege gender is a major dimension of privilege you know so if we are aware of our privileges and we actually 
recognize them. Then the next thing to do is to hand over our power, which is derived to us by our privileges, to those that we want to serve. And then the, uh, once you do that, then authenticity and social justice is going to be achieved. Hmm. I love how you laid all that out. And I, I agree, there's so many layers to privilege. Uh, I'm obviously um, the product of some highly privileged, uh, motiv- just motivated, disciplined people, uh, and definitely would not be where I am without them. And I think many of us can say the same. Um, so that's great, great advice. Um, my last question, is there anything else uh, about you, about MRF, about you know healthcare in general, universal health coverage that you want to leave our audience with before we let you go for the day? Well, I think that the, what I would like to say about, uh, about us, about myself, is that there is no path to success. The path is co-created. So we as an organization and myself are always open to listening to people. We don't have boundaries that we do this and this we don't do. We listen to people. And we say, that sounds like a good idea, but this is what the community needs. This is the objective. These are the insights of the community. Let us co-create. So we are always open to discussing with people when they have great ideas. And some may resort to something, some may not. But we always have a, a listening ear because we, are, we, we always go back to the community and check what are their insights, what's driving their behavior. And therefore, we don't, have, we don't know what we need to know for tomorrow. We will discover what we need to know for tomorrow together. I love that. Uh, I think there's a famous African proverb too, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to uh, go far, uh, go together. And so that, that just reminded me of that, of co-creation and partnership. And certainly it's an organization we're proud to be affiliated with. And I'd love to continue the discussions and hopefully see you in, uh, in, in Africa in a couple of months. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for this conversation. Of course. And with that, uh, thank you again, Dr. Gitai, for not just for your time, but like the work you do to raise line in Africa and, and beyond and strengthen our healthcare system. So I'll leave, I'll leave our audience with that. Thank you for listening to today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our collective healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.